0: traffic. I was hand on the stick and hand on the spoilers because I would use the spoilers to create more drag and pull myself back into the tow plane as we are going through this rotor, which is just violent. And I had to ask him to watch and hold, have his hand at the ready for any second to pull the release if we lost sight of the tow plane or flipped
1: upside down or something. It was incredibly rough. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck, I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 86. If you haven't already, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And if you really want to help grow the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. A big thank you to our newest Patreon pilot to join us, Rolf Dunder. Thank you for contributing to the podcast. Greatly appreciated. And a big thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast. If you want to support us financially, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash storing We do have some benefits for those of you that want to do that. If you don't want to use Patreon, you can still help us out by going to our website and hitting the support the show button where you will see some other options there. While you're at our website, please sign up for our brand new newsletter. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Today, our featured guest pilot is Patrick McMahon. Patrick is a Canadian cross-country soaring pilot and flight instructor located in Alberta, Canada. Today, he flies at QNIM Gliding Club, having learned to fly with the Royal Canadian Air Cadet Program and learned to soar in southern Ontario at York Soaring Association. During the week, Patrick manages various energy efficiency programs across Canada with an emphasis on residential retrofits. Soaring is an extension of this work as he considers it energy efficiency as a sport. He is an advocate for the sport in Canada, maintaining the social media properties of the Soaring Association of Canada, has served for over a decade on the volunteer boards of his respective gliding clubs, and is a co-founder of The Proving Grounds, an automated task, scoring, and ranking platform intended to turn glider pilots to soaring pilots in three simple steps. Patrick co-owns an LS6B-EH, but will fly anything he can when the weather is pleasant and And there's a willing tow pilot. Later on this episode, we hear another great soaring tale from author and glider pilot, Dale Masters. We then head to Blairstown, New Jersey for our tips and techniques segment and catch up with our friend, blogger and CFIG, Daniel Sazen. Today we will talk about the importance of being trained on how to handle landing out and one of his recent interesting experiences when he had to do just that. We will then wrap up the podcast with our Soaring Safety segment. All this now on episode 86 of Soaring the Sky. Patrick McMahon, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Thank you for spending some time with us today. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, Chuck. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here.
1: Now, where are you flying out of, Patrick?
0: Uh, I'm currently flying out of a club called the QNM Gliding Club, which is located south of the city of Calgary in the province of Alberta on the eastern slopes of the Canadian Rocky Mountains.
1: So, can you describe your glider port, what it's like flying out of there?
0: Yeah, we're a club. Uh, the QM Gliding Club is about 50 to 70 members, depending on the year. And we have um, two cross grass strips uh, located outside of the town of Black Diamond. Um, and they're about 4,000 feet long each one east west and one just off north south. Uh, the club has uh, three single seat gliders, two two seat gliders. And um, a 250-horsepower Pawnee is our is our operation.
1: Now I usually ask this question a little bit later in the podcast, but what is your club doing? We were talking earlier before we started this, but what is your club doing to promote soaring and to motivate people to fly?
0: Yeah, um, we've got a couple really interesting initiatives I think that are worth sharing uh, going on at the Gliding Club right now. Um, And I think, you know, it's a great opportunity to share since so many gliding operations have common challenges around recruitment and retention. So on the recruitment side, we found a lot of success. And I don't know if it was COVID in 2020 that kept people close to home, but um, we introduced a training program that we called objective oriented training, where instead of confusing interested new potential members with, you know, basic membership fee and SSA, or in our case, a Soaring Association of Canada fee and, uh, and then a tow price and, and then flight time or block time. We just, we created a kind of combo or a package. Um, and, uh, so we like members would buy 30 flights that they had to redeem in the flying year. And it really forced them to, to do, to take those flights and, um, you know, with more flying you're more likely to achieve an outcome and with with outcomes you're more likely to come back and we had a lot of success with it it's um, less confusing to get started and you can introduce the confusion later um, it's really easy to market and communicate and um, it lends itself to new members getting those outcomes associated with uh, an active flying season
1: i like that idea
0: yeah we're we're pretty happy with it we've uh we we have a side of our bargain or, you know, the club has an obligation to make sure that um, those flights that are pre-purchased and we say you have to use them in the flying year on the club side, we have to be able to accommodate that. So we actually cut off the number of students that we would take that had no previous flying experience. And uh, so we were over, we were fully subscribed in 2020 and we have a wait list that if everybody converted um, would exhaust our student capacity for 2021 already um, so we're definitely seeing the interest, and what's most important is we're seeing the results: is uh, from first solos or first solos in a long time, or first solos on gliders. We had a lot of really great uh, milestones to celebrate, in what's been a difficult year to celebrate. Twenty
1: twenty. Yes, for sure. But it it sounds like it'll definitely motivate you to fly more.
0: Yeah, we're like, and then our next phase is this retention issue. So getting those members that we sub, you know, invest so much time into developing and then to see them kind of go by the wayside is, we've also, we created a a platform um, at the Gliding Club, myself and some colleagues that we call the Proving Grounds, which is, uh, it's an automated task scoring program. And uh, so it takes the, the solo pilot or the licensed pilot and it introduces them to outcome oriented flying or task flying, starting with a small task around the airfield that they can do without cross country permissions. But it starts to introduce the language of cross-country soaring and task flying and flight computers and all those tools that are, um, you know, as important to be able to do aerotow to go gliding. Um, those skills and that knowledge is necessary to go fly cross-country. And so at QM we have uh, uh, we'll do it miles, 30 miles rhombus around the gliding club, then a sixty-mile triangle and a ninety-mile triangle out onto the prairies. And uh, so now we can take a student. Get them to solo and give them those first next steps uh, to develop them into a cross country pilot. And we're really of the belief that uh, once you get that um, bug, that adrenaline rush, um, you're highly probable to be a, a long time member. And that's, of course, what we want is creating new friends and creating new pilots and creating new successes. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, once you fly and you solo and you start flying around the airport, um, if you don't venture out, you know, they get bored. And, yeah, the next thing you know, you lose some members. So, yeah, get them out there and get that bug to go cross-country.
0: Yeah, and we've got social competition kind of built into it. There's these metal, um trophy boards. So the pilot would get their trace, their IGC trace from the file, and email it to their club spot. And um, then they'll get the result and their score. And then we, we ship um, magnetic whiteboard strips for you to write your name on it and what aircraft you were in and what your time was or your average speed, handicapped average speed. And then rearrange the magnetic slips kind of like they used to do on the old Top Gear show. And I, I, I've mentioned this as something that was organically kind of produced at QM Gliding Club, but we've automated that scoring bot and now there's 13 clubs across Canada that use the system. And at the start of 2021, the Soaring Society of America indicated that they'd provide support for the setup and the trophies for interested um, SSA chapters and commercial operators. So if you're looking for a platform that uh, can help close the gap between the solo floating pilot and the cross-country pilot and tenured member, then uh, you can check out that that solution, The Proving Grounds.
1: Very cool. We will put a link there in the show notes so people can click on that and get a hold of you. And clubs that want to do that it definitely sounds like an opportunity to better their club and get people out there and venture out and do some cross country. So, what started your aviation adventure?
0: Yeah, when I was I was I grew up in Ontario, Canada, and um, my parents tell me that I was self motivated to join uh, a youth like uh, the air cadets program in Canada here, which I guess is kind of similar to the civil aviation. Um, society or cadet program. And uh, I was lucky enough at the age of 16 to win a gliding scholarship and uh, shipped off with, you know, 80 other young uh, boys and girls or young men and women and learned on 233s under the cadet program, which is a really regimented gliding operation, pure gliding operation. And when I finished university, I, uh, I said I had this license and I haven't really done much with it. And that's when I joined a soaring club started my soaring journey that would have been about 2006 in 2014 is when I kind of really started getting involved in cross-country and uh since then I've become super engaged like to the annoyance of my friends talking about uh gliding and my glider and the sport and the opportunity but uh (laughs) when I when I'm at the gliding club I have a a great group of sympathetic individuals who I, I can share those that passion with but uh that's my background really as an air cadet pilot and then got into soaring. And now I fly cross country and we're doing some pioneering work in the Chinook Wave east of the Rockies, competition pilot, and uh, yeah, just uh, passionate about the sport.
1: So how is the fly in the Chinook Wave?
0: The, yeah, the Chinook's uh, interesting. So the, the Canadian altitude records are, have been consistently set in southern Alberta outside of a town called Cowley, and um this year we the the place record was reset over 32,000 feet by Melanie Parody and uh, Patrick Peltier um out of Edmonton soaring club uh so there's definitely a high altitude opportunity and in the early 2000s there were a couple pilots that were exploring the wave system for distance flights but the sports changed so much really in the last 10 or 15 years or so with forecasting and flight computers and the online contest so it's, it's almost, you know, it's difficult to really understand what those, those pioneering individuals are doing. But a friend and colleague of mine has recently purchased an Arcus-M, a Shemperth Arcus-M, and he has been really exploring the Chinook wave with many um, over 1,000-kilometer flights. He uh, flew over the border down to Helena, Montana, and back. Um, High-speed uh, flights, mostly up to about 15,000, 16,000 feet. Uh, it's a really powerful wave system. And what's great about it is it sits right where the Rockies transition to the foothills and then the um, the prairies. So <clears throat> if things did go poorly, you're bailing out to the east and to flatlands, and the flatlands help set up the wave to be uniform, but they also create a lot of safety options uh, in the event that something um, did go uh, wrong, like you lost the lift. But it's really strong. Oh, we did a flight recently, um, late late November, that ended up being 972 kilometers at 212 kilometers an hour on OLC. We spent probably 40% of the flight at VNE for um, uh, like altitude adjusted VNE uh, near the top of our air traffic control clearance. Uh, it was just like it was so fast and it's so much fun. And because it's in Canada, we've had to this individual that bought the ark has also ended up buying a snow plow and a snowblower, and he's prepared to clear the runway to have these opportunities because the wave is most stable and most uniform through the winter months. But historically, the airfield's been closed in with snow. So it's quite the operation up here.
1: And what's the elevation of the Rockies there?
0: Yeah, ground elevation for our field is around 3,700 feet. And uh, I'd have to double check, but I think mountaintops are eight to eight to 10, depending on the mountains. We're on the really Eastern range of it, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't, you have to go pretty deep to find, um, like 14s and stuff like that.
1: So you're opening up the season a little more for your soaring club. I'm guessing in order to get those, you said in order to get those conditions, what was, what was your normal season for your soaring club?
0: Yeah, the kind of status quo activity would be, uh, it's a, the peak cross-country flying is May to July, uh, and then the air mass tends to get stable. And, you know, if we try to think about our, our operational year, uh, July and August present great training uh, months. You know, we can do fl- soaring and sustained flight all year round, but you know, we can support seven 800 kilometer uh, cross-countries in May to July. This individual with the Arcus is, is, is yeah, you you're right, quite right, is that not only has he cleared the runway to create the opportunity to fly through the winter, but also you know, showcasing what's possible in this energy system. And uh, what's been interesting as we've thought about it is you know, the self-launcher is is not a tool that's accessible to most um, people. It's Canadian dollars, almost a half million dollar airplane. But what we've been trying to pay attention to is where we pack the engine on recent flights. And the last two flights, with that particularly in mind, have both been in aerotow accessible drop locations. And the gliding the Club-, the Club owns a DG1000. So we are looking at creating an opportunity to evaluate um, practically and safely if aerotow operations are possible. And what the training toward um, mountain wave flying would be. Things happen really fast up there. You're in strong lift or strong sink or very aggressive rotor. Uh, You're moving very quickly. We're talking a lot about what the training plan is to introduce this concept safely. But what's really nice about this is mass is your friend when the energy is so overwhelming. It's beneficial to be having two people in two place airplanes. So, There's a private member, Duo Discus, there's another Arcus, Uh, there's the DG-1000. So we have some really capable two-seat airplanes that uh, we're hoping to, in time, prudently work with owners and pilots to see that this can be done, that we could fly year-round. We'd be the only gliding club at least east of the Rocky Mountains that would be able to fly and soar year-round. And these flights that are able to happen in December through February – are generally top 10 in the world, so when Chester goes out flying, it's a list of folks flying in Namibia, a couple of people flying in Australia, New Zealand, and then, there, you know, there's an errant Canadian in the top 10 on, on days when the when the waves set up nicely up here.
1: And now a word about our recently added new sponsor, Just Soaring. These guys are doing an all-new glider simulator cockpit for you Condor pilots out there that I think you're really going to be excited about. This sim rig was designed from the ground up with glider flight controls like flaps that have multi-position detents, a spring-loaded spoiler mechanism, landing gear lever, and flight controls laid out where you expect them to be in your cockpit. Built with super strong 8020 T-slot aluminum, which will not only hold up well, but will also allow for accessorization and customization over time. Designed by Glider Pilots for Glider Pilots, their mission is to design, engineer, and globally distribute a truly best-in-class, very affordable performance Glider Sim Cockpit. They plan to start taking pre-orders sometime in the next couple months, and they're looking at first shipments to be in spring of 2021. And yes, while they are a U.S. company, they plan to have warehousing in Europe to support that market as well. If you're thinking about upgrading your Condor cockpit, you might want to check these guys out first at justsoaring.com or at just.soaring on Instagram. You can reach out to them via their website with any questions. And thanks again to Just Soaring for supporting the show. If you like to be a sponsor or know someone that might, please drop us a line. Have you had any landouts?
0: I've had some landouts, primarily um, thermal flying on the prairie, so lots of cut hay fields, the occasional municipal airport, which I often find more troublesome than a cut hay field with sometimes gates or or runway lights. But uh, again, when, if you have a hundred knot West wind and you're 7,000 feet above ground, you're in a glider that would normally have a 50 to one glide ratio. Your actual glide ratio is well over a hundred. If you ever turned your um, self into with the wind and had to bail out to the, to the prairie. So the danger of the Rockies would be those trying to thermal fly into the Rockies. That's where, um, those conditions become very unforgiving, and there are very few landouts um, once you get into the rocks. The wave flying I don't is not super unsafe with respect to the landout risk in the rocks, but um, summer thermal flying certainly would would be the risky time to uh, to play with that feature from a lift perspective.
1: So, what are you currently flying?
0: Uh, so, I am a co-owner of a LS4, or LS6B, so a flap on, flapped flap airplane. My partner and I bought that um, last year, and we got our first flights in it uh, through the 2020 soaring season, which is great. And then when uh, my partner is flying the glider and I'm left blind club equipment, the club has a LS4, a D, uh ASW19, and a PW5, or I'll be instructing in the K21. We got a brand new K21B, or the DG1000. Lots of options. All great airplanes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me about the scariest tow or winch launch? I I didn't ask you, but have you done any winch launches?
0: Uh, Yeah, I've done. I had a winch launch training on Schweitzer's back when I was a cadet pilot. I flew at a a gliding center for the cadet program that was winch operated. My first solo winch launch, I had a cable break, but I was on a massive runway, the Air Force training uh, detachment we were training at. Um, But as a first introduction to solo winching, I had a cable break. Uh, as far as <clears throat> rough arrow toes um, the high altitude flying that is done at that town I mentioned at Cowley um, the Alberta Soaring Council here organizes two camps at that site one in the fall and one in the summer the fall is known for these really high altitude flights but the general operation there is to tow through to the primary wave and you have to go through this really aggressive rotor so a couple years ago I was flying with a, a friend named Glenn and um, I was hand on the stick and hand on the spoilers because I would use the spoilers to create more drag and pull myself back into the tow plane as you're we going through this rotor, which is just violent. And I had to ask him to watch and hold, have his hand at the ready for any second to pull the release. If we lost sight of the tow plane or flipped upside down or something, it was incredibly rough. So that would be my roughest toe, toe experience for sure is going through the rotor and the, and the wave out here.
1: So ob- obviously, obviously, um... You've had, I'm sure, some memories of flying in formation, either with some birds or maybe some other gliders, other aircraft, anything that sticks out?
0: I think it's always really, you know, when you get the opportunity to soar with a bird of prey, it's such a great reminder of how unique this sport is and the opportunity that we have. and. So yeah, I, I got I was thermaling with a bald eagle earlier uh, this year, uh, two years ago. I remember on a training flight, this woman's might have been her fifth or sixth training flight, we released and I saw a falcon, maybe a peregrine falcon hunting effectively this on the prairies and we flew right underneath it and so it didn't really see us coming but we were maybe, I don't know, 30 feet below it and came up and caught up and it, it, you could definitely tell that it got a bit startled to, to see something like a glider sneak up from underneath it. But yeah, the opportunity when you have those birds off the wingtip or when you're flying with, with those birds of prey, it's really, I think it really highlights that we're doing something pretty pretty unique. And I'm so excited about um, the opportunity for the sport right now to, to share that. You had Stefan on a couple weeks ago and, you know, all the, the YouTube videos and the Instagram fame that some pilots, the young pilots, especially in Europe are finding. Um, it's really great to see how much content is being created in the sport right now. And I often say that it's, it's you know, it's never been easier to tell our story with um, sharing posts on skylines that creates a map that you're, that my mom can understand. And, and then platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and all these kinds of things to really... Highlight how accessible soaring actually is and how amazing uh, the activity is. So it's, uh, I think it's a really great time to be in the sport. And
1: what's the scariest thing you've seen from the cockpit, or maybe scariest thing you've seen from the ground? And what did you learn from it?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really important question. Is um, and to focus on the the lesson. I know that my first landouts. You know, you learn so much from a landout and managing speed specifically. Uh, on that final approach but I was uh, flying in British Columbia there's a along the Columbia River there's a gliding club called the Invermere Soaring Center last year and that's a thermal thermal ridge uh, soaring site flying generally along the uh, western slopes of the Rockies before it transitions into the next mountain range Purcell mountain range those conditions really force you to stay on on your toes I don't know if it was necessarily uh, like scary. I would hope not to be necessarily scared in the cockpit, but staying aware and really that really forced me more than I would find on a, on a thermal flight over the prairies, uh, the need to keep safe options and understand, you know, what's the implication of being on this side of the rock versus that. Um, Things can happen really quickly and, There's no escape button on these things. So yeah, I think that hyper-awareness and for me, what's really important as far as a safety culture is being open and talking about those things publicly and remaining humble and not counting on my skill or my experience or any pilot skill or experience to get them out of that situation, but really not to put themselves in that situation and, One of my friends that I fly with, the gentleman with the Arcus, he has this risk assessment, which is can you do that a thousand times and walk away from the glider? So, um, so if you have a somewhat dicey experience, you know, that's, you know, it would be like that's one of the things that you can't do a thousand times and don't do those things. Uh, Don't let those become part of what you would normally tolerate. So, I think it's really important and I think it's really easy to keep high tolerances for safety in flying. And I really think that it's important to remain humble, remain aware, and to talk about those things that you experience with your colleagues. Because as they say, you can't live long enough to make all the mistakes.
1: Absolutely. But yeah, if we can share them and talk about it together, yeah, that definitely would help us all out. So do you have a dream glider port that maybe you want to fly out of someday?
0: I think this is such a great question because um, I know when I was flying in Southern Ontario and I would be, you know, four or 5,000 feet above ground level, I thought, you know, this is where I live. It's where I grew up. This is perfect. How could it be better? And then I I moved to Alberta and our cross country days were eight to 9,000 feet above ground and we have less airspace and we have more open fields and we can go faster and the lift seems stronger. And I think, how could it be better than this? We have, some ridge opportunities occasionally we've got this great wave so I don't know that I have another dream glider port but I really am interested in understanding what makes other gliding sites unique Um, I have this dream of you know putting the glider on especially in the Canadian winter and you know going to Nevada or Arizona California to try out some of those sites and at the same time as i would love to be a glider tourist for a you know some period of time i also appreciate how important the local intelligence is in spending the time in these sites to learn the kind of secrets and the quirks so you know one of the, i think the bottom line or the conclusion of that is that soaring prov- provides an unlimited opportunity to experience and tackle new accessible challenges that are are thrilling through that, that pursuit. Not to mention international soaring opportunities uh, of obviously the lure of uh, New Zealand or um, Namibia and S- South Africa. But uh, yeah, there's, I'd, I'd like to fly everywhere. I like flying my own airplane. So there's some logistical issues around leaving North America, but, uh, uh, and I'd like to go to more competitions because I, I, I find that every competition I've ever competed in or participated in my flying has changed demonstrably like I can describe something that I learned that I apply going forward from most all competitions I've participated in to date so that journey and, and those experiences and those new locations is uh is something that's super attractive about gliding to me
1: can you tell me about some of those competitions you've been in were they all there in Alberta or
0: no I, I started competing um in Ontario um there's a really great my very f- First competition effectively was um, a novice style competition at the Gatineau Gliding Club outside of Ottawa, Ontario, and it's a very proactively supportive contest. Generally speaking, on contest pilots don't use the radio, but it was encouraged there to help the novice pilot find lift and you know think about tasks on route and how much time was left in the task time. So that was a really great opportunity. It was just inherently designed to learn. I was a contest manager, and, and I competed in the 2016 Canadian Nationals, which uh, was a really strong contest. Um, like we had fantastic weather, we had average speeds that were rivaling uh, those in Texas at the same time. That was a really great opportunity to participate with a lot of you know high caliber pilots. And then I've started I've, I've competed out here and uh, in provincial competitions and we're you know we were planning to have the nationals the Canadian nationals here last year but covid and I understand there's some good competitions just south of the border so Euphrates got a good competition and I'll, I'll look to region 9 in the coming years and now that I have my own glider it creates some more flexibility to participate in those but the camaraderie and um, and the kind of peculiar rules once you're into the language of sport and thinking about optimal start strategies i think it's so funny to talk to people that aren't familiar with gliding because most of the general public seems to be under the pressure that you just go up and come down so the idea that you can go anywhere and that you can do that quickly and that you could you know regard a start and and plan you know your countdown to a start line through a start cylinder with the degree of accuracy that uh The competition pilots do it it's really hard for people i think to make that jump from don't they just go up and come down it's like i couldn't tell you You couldn't be further from the truth um so it's and again it comes back to being able to tell that story i think and give them the 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 stepping stones toward believing that it's possible
1: yeah it's amazing the people you run into and have those conversations and they're like oh
0: what happens when the wind stops yeah (laughs) i love that
1: question Oh yeah. That, that That's a famous one. <laughs> <laughs> so you have some time in the off season, obviously, because I mean, things are changing a little bit. Your soaring season, of course, might be opening up like you were talking about, but for the most part, you have some time that you're not able to soar. So do you fly any Condor, any simulation soaring?
0: I've just gotten into Condor in the past, um, two, maybe two months or so of my, uh, my girlfriend got me a joystick for, uh, for Christmas and, um, I'm competing in the U S winter series now. And, um, I had played around with contour years, condor years ago, and I, I couldn't really commit, but I'm not sure what it is now, but I, you know, I should check my heart rate on my Fitbit after a competition flight because it's, uh, it's really quite engaging. Um, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And, uh, with the proving grounds, I think we're going to, we've updated the, uh, the Proving Grounds service, so that if you flew a Proving Grounds task in Condor, you could submit that and it will tell you it's a simulation flight. Oh, nice. So we're gonna be looking for more ways to strategically use Condor, support clubs that are using Condor as an entry point to cross-country soaring, but also be able to pair it with uh, the Proving Grounds for those clubs that uh, choose to um, take advantage of that offer or see value in that platform. So yeah, I think it's uh, really neat and our club organizes our communication through the chat platform Slack and we've got a a Condor channel on Slack and where everything else for club communication is quiet. The Condor Slack is alive and well right now and maybe a week in the next couple uh, US winter series flights. I think half the <laughs> I have a suspicion that half the pilots are going to be from the QNM gliding club. So, uh, yeah, we're we're a good group here, and we uh, we're having fun with it. But uh, it's uh, it's an incredible product, as, and it's so realistic. It's actually remarkable um, how realistic it is. So yeah, it's a great tool, and it's great fun, and it, it certainly helps keep the continuity of the culture going through the winter.
1: Absolutely you know, and, and the more like you have, you said, you have the stick. If, if you get the pedals, um, even go up to the VR, the VR puts you totally immerses you in it. And it's, it's, it's pretty well,
0: I was worried about using XC I'm an XC pilot and want to, you know, improve my layouts and stuff like that perpetually. But, um, so I had poo pooed the uh, uh, VR and a colleague of mine at the gliding club, um, they shared a video. Someone in the U.S. has posted, like, how to mount an XC soar screen in the foreground. So I, I've just got everything set up, and I got one of these track IR things. So I, for the time being, I'm, I'm invested in head tracking, but I'm interested to uh, – I <laughs> wonder how long it'll be before I uh, do the VR thing. But it's incredible. Yeah, it's super great.
1: Once you uh, put the VR on and do some soaring, you'll be definitely doing more.
0: that's a that's sounds like a warning not an invitation
1: (laughs) 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 oh yeah it's 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 a lot of fun for sure i always uh give everyone the chance to give any shout outs if they want to thank the people that were influential and they're soaring so would you like to do that
0: yeah there's a, a number of people i'd be remiss not to mention my colleagues that are working on the uh proving grounds with me so our our astute technical coordinator is uh, Casey Brown, and um, the person that's running our tasks is Chris Goff. And interesting thing about Chris Goff, he's a third-generation Diamond recipient, so father and grandfather. I'm not sure how many people out there can lay claim to that. Two or three primary mentors that I've had in uh, in coming up in soaring, one's Charles Peterson, who's uh, he flies still in southern Ontario, taught me a lot about... The Art of the Possible with gliding politics and working on volunteer boards, but also on cross-country soaring. My friend Randy Nielsen, he uh, shepherded me through my first few seasons of cross-country soaring. I was flying an LS-4B. He was flying an LS-6B, which I now co-own. And um, he was really influential for teaching me kind of the principles like, Patrick, if you wait until the day is good, you will have missed the best part of the day. Um, and, uh, did some good dual flying and, and, learning how to read clouds with a gentleman, Tony Furman. These were all in Ontario. And, uh, and then there's a, a, a legend in Alberta gliding. Unfortunately, he passed away with cancer recently, but, uh, Phil Stoddy was, uh, he was a, a short man in stature, but he, uh, carried a lot of weight and as, uh, is really the foundation. There's a really great community among the four gliding clubs in Alberta. Phil is responsible for a lot of that. That community here. So, those are some people that are, definitely have helped me get me where I am. And um, I hope that I can be uh, a mentor to others in the future as an instructor and as a cheerleader and, uh, and as a passionate individual sharing, sharing my love of the sport.
1: Well, thank you for your contribution to the sport and not only being an instructor, but doing the other ventures you have in the proving grounds and everything like that does improve soaring. So, Thank you for that. And thank you for spending time with us here on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for the invitation. And thanks for uh, for putting your time into doing this and uh, sharing this content. It's uh, For so long, gliding clubs and glider pilots have operated in isolation. And I think platforms like this are a great way for us to uh, find out what's working and, uh, and find out where to go and what to do and how to do it. And uh, so thank you for uh,
1: being that platform. Absolutely. And keep in touch. I'm happy to do that. And the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative for HPH-LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. Dale Masters joins us right now for another soaring tale with Dale here on soaring this guy. So here's another one about towing
2: and it has to do with a 15 year old girl who was a, again, a line crew person and a solo student pilot. And she had already, she'd soloed and she knew some stuff. So we were doing an experiment, uh, for the, for the last time, the first and last time, uh, we wanted to try more or less simultaneous launches. So we had two strips, a grass strip and a paved strip. Uh, of course, lights on the paved strip, which means there's one strip of lights between the grass and the pavement. And we had two tow planes and two gliders and two tow ropes. And this 15-year-old line kit connecting it all, a total of uh, six pilots, two tow pilots and four glider pilots. And uh, we were just about ready to to go. Everything was hooked up and ready to start. And one of the tow planes shut off the engine. The tow pilot got out and walked back to the middle and just stood there with an angry look on his face. And we were wondering why. Well, he's the only one who recognized that the, uh, the tow plane, the glider on the grass was hooked up to the tow plane on the pavement and the glider on the pavement was hooked up to the tow plane on the grass. And he caught that just before we all started to move. So you, figure, you, you know what happened next. We just didn't do that. We realized that was a stupid mistake anyway. We, we just canceled that experiment. But as it turns out, the same girl, later that season, she was going up on her umpteenth solo. And uh, the little lanyard that holds the canopy from going too far open, that had had worn and broken. So we just grabbed some tow rope, cut a length off some old tow rope, and uh, tied her a, a rope lanyard on the canopy, and she went and had her flight. But once she was up there, she realized, well, when I move the stick all the way back, uh, I, I can't go all the way back. You know, and if, I, if I go back and try to go to either side, I can't move it at all. And she instinctively realized what that was and reached around, and sure enough, she managed to get, uh, she, she felt that the, the rope was around the back stick. And she got that unhooked and made the lanyard. So needless to say, we fixed that lanyard better the second time. And that 15-year-old girl now has kids older than 15. But I always think that maybe she wouldn't have had any kids at all if she hadn't been smart enough to unhook that rope.
1: And now we join Daniel Sazen from Blairstown, New Jersey, for our Tips and technique segment. Daniel Sazin, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you again today. Glad to be here. Happy to help. And today I wanted to talk about landing out for our tips and techniques segment. And you had an interesting blog, as you have a lot of interesting blogs, but your blog, of course, is called Soaring Economist. And the particular one I was looking at was titled Trouble with the Troopers. (laughs) Indeed. Late last year, 2020, you had the duck hawk out, and you had to make a decision to land out. So, can you tell me about that land out?
3: Sure. You know, it was a, um, it was an interesting day. You know, I went out went out on a on a weaker day to go and explore some of the, the the higher ground to the west of the airport, and um, had a had a pretty nice flight and kind of mosey my way up a up a lift street you when know, with the wind you know, blowing about 15 knots aloft or so. But then the conditions cycled down, and I got a little too excited, and I tried to transition to another cloud, another live street, and fell right out of the band. And it was a bit late in the season, and despite it being only two thirty, you know, when sunset's at you know, somewhere around four forty-five, you know, you really don't have that much time to work with. But nonetheless, I settled down and got lower and lower, and tried a couple clouds here and there and everywhere, and uh, that didn't quite work. And soon enough, I'm getting quite low and I'm picking, you know, saying, man, you know, I may uh, end up in a field today, surprisingly. Um, but nonetheless, I looked down in front of me and uh, picked out a nice uh, big cut hay, uh, cut hay field, I think it was. And um, basically used that as kind of my anchor point and tried some, some lift in the vicinity of the field and then uh once i got down to pattern altitude i said all right well looks like i'll be making my first land out of the year in november <laughs> i think yeah I'm pretty sure it was a november flight and uh and so made my pattern and landed um you know and it just uh and it was you know, like i think it was my 51st land out in a field and and so it, uh i was very very ready to make the shift when uh, when i needed to um it was a very nice field and things worked out very well.
1: Daniel, what do you do to plan and prepare for a land out situation?
3: Where do you want to start? So like, at what, at what time scale, right? Like in terms of what is the beginning of the training that you could possibly do or how do you go and prepare your, you know, kind of your kit? or you know and how or how do you prepare to land out on the given day like when you're in a given situation because that there there you know that, that that's a question that is so has many many different levels to it you know
1: so i guess for a student's point of view or maybe they're not a student now but they just now have their private mm-hmm. and they want to reach out, they want to fly c- cross-country, but they definitely want to be prepared uh-huh. to land out. What would you suggest they go about doing?
3: That's an excellent question. Um, and the the easiest, kind of most straightforward answer is get the bronze badge. And go uh, a bronze badge under the supervision of an instructor that has… Cross-country experience and preferably landout experience uh, is that's exactly what it's meant to do. So there's a soaring element and you know some soaring technique and you know an, an achievement. That's one part of it, but the other part of it is making accuracy landings or simulated off-field landings. And basically, you know, you go out there and work with an instructor, and they will spend a whole bunch of one-on-one time working with you. And I actually. Uh, being a, a CFI I worked with two uh, club members on my own part and they they just recently got their bronze badges over the winter and it was an excellent you know and that's that's what we do and and so that that's just one very clear way that a an aspiring you know like a, a person working their way up can get very particular training now uh you know kind of extending beyond that I would say there there there's a number number of things you can do you know f- for one i think that a lot of people they beyond when they ha- already have the ability to control the glider and land where they want to at the airport they have this a bit of a fear of landing on other surfaces. So for example, I notice a lot of less experienced pilots, you know, they'll, they'll always land on the grass runway at Blairstown, which is good. That's what they normally do. Uh, but then they the, the concept of landing on the asphalt pavement is scary, or the concept of landing in, in a, in a, in a plowed field is scary. And, and to some degree, you know, I mean, so certain things can be trained, like you can fly with an instructor and land on pavement or land on grass or, you know, if, if you haven't done one or the other. And you should have those experiences if you can uh, seek them out because it's, it's just good, good practice and good training. Um, but then with something like landing off in a field, um, that when you go and, for example, go on a retrieve – you know you, you then you can kind of work out the dynamics and what that looks like and how it feels like or even watching some YouTube videos and things like that that it really the glider handles the surface just fine and once you kind of can overcome that aspect you know of understanding kind of how a landout works then it goes into things like well how do you find you know how do you figure out you know kind of where where to go you know what what what's a good field and what isn't and you know a lot of that comes from you know training such as in the bronze badge uh, and working with someone a lot of some of that comes from looking at fields on your own like uh, a, a um, cross country pilot when they're driving to the airport they're you know they they go and listen to their music or listen to uh, Chuck's podcast you know but then they're also looking outside and they're looking at the fields and saying yeah I could probably make it into that field you know and you kind of play this game in your mind saying well you know yeah well that that short field you know like if I go and I make this. The right right kind of slip, and I have the right kind of wind, and that has the right amount of slope. That yeah, I can make it into that really short field. No, not really, you know. But it's just you sort of play that mind game with yourself, you know. And uh, but then you you sort of you you kind of constantly work out what those techniques might look like. And then and when you're actually serious about, you know, like certain fields being useful, you might look it out. And you kind of glance at it and say, yeah, well that field is landable. You know, I could easily get a glider in there, no problem. And maybe that field will be of good use to you at some point. And so, and as you've done that sort of thing, and then you know beyond that, you can look at Google Earth, or you can look at, uh, play, you know, do some of these things in the simulator, preferably under supervision, like in Condor, um, and go from there. So there, there's a, I mean, that was a bit of a rambling reply. I apologize for that. There, there's, there's a lot of things you could do, you know, starting with actual training with someone, um, and then using the simulator and just kind of putting some good thought into it, reading books. You know, like Kai Gertson's guide to cross-country soaring and landouts. So, yeah, there's a lot of resources out there.
1: You know, tying all those together, I think, is a great way to always be aware of where you are. Like you said, even driving simulators, great. All those things kind of bring it together, so you're aware of where you're flying. So things got a bit interesting even after you were on the ground and you and the glider were in good shape. So what happened? Oh well, I mean, landouts are always an
3: adventure. To what to in various ways and so you're gonna have your crew coming to get you with the trailer you know you're gonna go and go for a hike preferably find the landowner if you can and you know and you're just sort of you go and you, you, you kind of explore your surroundings and try to make the retrieve go smoothly and uh you know, and actually, things worked out really well. on Ultimately, you know, I mean, I I went and found uh, a pair of friendly neighbors. I don't remember their names. Uh, I should have wrote wrote it down uh, nearby. But they they took me in, gave me coffee. You know, had had a wonderful conversation, and I was hoping that those uh, folks could find the landowners because you know you're you know if you can find the house and you know in the the landowner happens to be there, that's the that's you know it's always good to. Let them know that you're you're down safe and you know and, and ask you know if you can go and retrieve the glider, which they invariably will always say you certainly could. Um, but in my case, I just couldn't find the landowners, so I tried to find a neighbor that could get get in touch with them. And those folks actually really helped out; they um, contacted folks around, but they couldn't get a hold of the people that own the field. But anyway, um, my my crew came, and figuring that I I had made contact with at least someone in the community. That would eventually pass the word that everything was fine. I um, we, we we worked our way back out to the field and got the glider apart, no problem. But then the person that uh, took care of the field, the caretaker, be, saw saw that we were going in there and uh, got uh, uh, concerned. <laughs> and uh, he came out and you know and was. um he ended up talking to the neighbors for a while i didn't even realize he was there uh because the neighbors were going to go over and take a look at the glider they were going to see how everything worked and all that sort of thing but they they were you know they didn't venture into the field and instead they were talking to the to that fellow and uh he ended up going and getting a hold of the local authorities uh just to kind of make sense of the situation and uh they came and and you know and i Talk to the cops. Talk to the the caretaker. one the way way out because I, I didn't even see that he had come, and everything worked out. It took a little while. Just the 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 local authorities decided to uh, try to get a hold of the FAA, which and the the local Fisdo they you know they they were well they weren't operating at that point um, you know just because it was getting later, but basically landouts land for any Fisdo that. Uh, operates in the vicinity you know of gliders know that landouts are non event so long as there's no damage to the glider or the property so by the you know and after a while they managed to get a hold of someone and that's exactly the information that they had that they had you know conveyed to the, the local authorities so you know it just I got stuck there for a little while but otherwise everything worked out I mean generally speaking uh, you're I've had this happen in my 50 landouts I think I've been in touch with law enforcement maybe two or three times, give or take, and the and like and twice uh, like of those two times of the two of the three that is, it was just like one cop car came by and you know and I just went and, like just talked to the you know they they got my information and went away you know they they really never uh, got really all that wound up over it. But that being said, I mean, so long as you have your documents and. You know everything works out. Um, the, you know there, it's it's not really an issue. And and really, the important kind of thing to realize is there's two separate episodes to a you know a flight and a and a resulting landout. You know there's the there's the flying side of things where you go and you you do you know you pick out your field and you make a safe landing and and you judge that in a certain. Certain set of ways, right? You want you want to make sure you have, you know, well, you know, a good. You want to select a good field. You want to have a well constructed pattern, you know, well man, you know, manage the energy well, and make a safe landing. And then there's the second side is the retrieve, right? And dealing with the landowners and dealing with the glider and all that sort of thing. Those are two completely two separate things. And I I understand that people kind of from from afar, you know, kind of group them together in, in terms of judging say a land out. But they they really shouldn't, and the reason being that really it doesn't matter how you get into a given field and how the retrieve goes. The important thing is you get down safe. The retrieve you'll always be able to deal with it, no matter what happens on the ground. You will you'll eventually get the glider back, and you'll work it out one way or another. This attitude was trained to me by uh, my mentors and uh, the people who've coached me over the years, um, and it's worked out just fine. All of my landouts ultimately worked out just fine. Some retrieves were trickier than others, of course, but I mean, at the end of the day, you'll always get the glider back, you know, but if you, if you go and you allow any of those kinds of things to temper your judgment while you're flying, when it comes time to making a land out, you can get yourself into serious trouble.
1: Absolutely. As glider pilots, we know it takes a team, like you were saying, to get that glider back home. Did you want to give a shout out to the crew that helped you
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, the <laughs> that was another interesting story that day. So um, my girlfriend Jen, you know, so she came out to the airport that day, you know, and spent spend some some time with the the folks. And I, I flew with her in the morning, um, and then uh, you know, like she ended up getting ended up being involved in the retrieve. And she hadn't driven a tra- uh, my you know my truck or trailer before, and so I set out to find someone to go with her to to drive the truck and trailer so that she didn't have to, you know, just a, it'd be a bit, bit more much for her first first retrieve. But the guys at the airport, unbeknownst to me, they, you know, they basically, you know, they encouraged Cahold her to, you know, to, to go with um, and, uh, be, you know, to actually do the, you know, to do all the driving and uh, kind of learn on the way. And, uh, and Steve Beer uh, ended up coming along with, you know, just kind of spot her along. So much to my surprise, I saw her pulling in, you uh, know, in the left seat of the car, you know, but she did great, you know, and uh, so, yeah, and so she, you know, they came and they did great and. Bought him dinner afterwards, and uh, and uh, she's still, uh, you know, she's still my girlfriend. So things worked out great.
1: Well, that's good. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what an adventure for her, huh?
3: Yeah, was, but you know, that's that's like what that's what landouts are kind of all about. You meet all sorts of interesting people, um, and uh, you know, and you get to go to very interesting places. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful it's uh, it's a
1: wonderful experience in the sport. Well I have to ask how is the duck hawk as far as getting that rig down and back in the trailer Oh the the, the disassembly part of the glider Yeah
3: Oh no not a problem uh, the 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 trailer it's a it's an old aluminum Cobra, Cobra trailer and so it's nice. it's a nice rig I mean the actual you know glider itself comes apart with two pins it's got four manual <laughs> hookups but I get those prepped before the the, the folks even arrive Uh, Tail tail comes apart easy. I mean, you know, it's about the same as any modern glider, really. And the trailer is well set up. I mean, honestly, uh, for anyone wanting to go cross-country, it it really, really does help to get acquainted with your trailer setup and preferably have it well prepared, you know, and everything good to go. uh, Or at least have a crew that is very well acquainted with it. And if so, then everything works out fine. You know, I mean... I've I've had experience with all sorts of gliders with all sorts of trailers, <laughs> and this one, you know, the, the Duck Hog is great in that respect, actually. But uh, so long as you know, so long as you are aware and comfortable with what your setup is, you know, everything works out fine. It's but it's it, it it a retrieve quickly becomes a nightmare if you're if you don't have the tools and if you if you really don't know how to get the glider apart and you, and if you start damaging things. In fact, you know the. Like, in the part of my learning, um, like, flying the, the Club 126, you know, the, I, I've never really damaged a glider in the landing part of off-field landing. But, like, going and, like, putting scratches and dents and, like, like these minor kinds of things by doing dumb stuff on the retrieve, you know, those kinds of things I, I learned because, you know, more the hard way, and, you know, things that I would not like to do again, right? And so, if you... Getting well acquainted with how to get the glider on the trailer or at least have people with you that are very comfortable with that is uh, is a is a really good thing
1: oh absolutely well daniel thanks for being on the podcast again today it's it's been great to have you back and interesting story about some land outs and how we can be prepared if we get in the position which we eventually do so thanks for thanks for talking about that today my pleasure This Soaring Safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems. Your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox, engineered for aviators.
4: You can't leave anything to chance And, and that goes from the moment of putting the glider together to the time you begin to take off and then while you're in the flight mode you're thinking ahead of the aircraft you're ahead of everything you make sure that you have considered all aspects of what can go wrong because they probably will uh, I'll, I'll tell you one one rigging experience i had or i had a couple of them but i'll tell you one that uh, that almost killed me and uh, i remember this this goes along the lines of don't let yourself be distracted when putting the glider together i was putting the guy i, I would often did this when i flew alone out of uh, uh, orland when i was up there with the uh, chico club and uh, we'd fly uh, i'd fly alone off and i'd have to put the glider together off and i had my son with me on this particular occasion and i, I again i had had uh, the aircraft up at john sinclair's uh doing some work on it and um, he had made me a little uh, device with uh, five fingers of, or uh, actually slipped over my uh, elevator push rod and it said It had written on it, five pins. And I thought, well, that's a cool little deal because I have five pins that I have to make sure are hooked up in safety. My my ailerons, both ailerons and and both uh, speed brakes or dive brakes and my elevator push rod. And I I took it off, the elevator push rod, and I took it over to my son, Tom. I said, hey, look at this, Tom. Isn't this a cool little mnemonic device to remember to hook everything up? He said, yeah, that's really neat. And and guess what? (laughs) I didn't hook up the elevator push rod. Got in the airplane without the elevator hooked up. I had a center of gravity uh, tow hook on my Pegasus at the time. And as soon as I got flying speed, the aircraft kited. And I knew what had happened. Immediately, I reached for the release and pulled it. Of course, I'm nose heavy now, and my nose pitches over. And I, and I said, well, all I can do is keep the wings level. I caromed off the runway. It hit the, uh, the fuselage just ahead of the wheel. It kind of bounced off. It didn't do any damage. I knew immediately what I'd done. Nobody else did. I got out and I uh, hooked up the elevator and uh, pinned safety and uh, hooked up the tow rope and went flying. And uh, I I know at least three people who have died because they did not hook up that elevator. And I was was just um, blind luck that I was able to overcome that problem. So when you hook up aircraft, make sure you uh, are not interrupted. And secondly, obviously, I didn't do a uh, control check and uh, because I would have found it on a control check. And uh, so th- all those things, uh, you know, you, you look at things that will keep you alive uh, after and through a flight. And those are some of the things I found during the years.
1: Thank you, Gary, for your contribution to our Soaring Safety segment. Gary has flown gliders for over 40 years and has some amazing stories. You can check them out and hear our entire chat with him on Episode 31. And that one is titled, a pioneer of soaring. Thank you for joining us today for another soaring journey here on the podcast. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soar.
3: If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.